Well, we've been working each week through the high points of the Easter season in this lectionary series. And as our very simple graphic depicts, our aim, our one aim really, is to place all of the suffering of our present situation depicted by box one of this graphic into the far greater context of the other five boxes. And I am well aware as a pastor that many of us are suffering right now, and and I've been suffering. Here is the risk with it. Here is the risk with suffering. We focus on it. When we suffer, we focus on it. Humans, I believe, are unique in not only suffering, but suffering the suffering. We look at our own suffering, we say, hang on, why am I in pain? Why am I suffering? Why is my neighbor okay and I'm not? Or we, we suffer the anticipation of suffering. What if I suffer? What if I get it? What if it comes to my family and into my house and into my town? Why me? What if I am next? As we do this, as we focus on the suffering and suffer the suffering, we get led into making a very simple mistake. We start to think that if only this one thing would go away, then we'd be okay. Well, it wouldn't be. It would be better not to have a global pandemic, I freely admit, but it would not be globally perfect if it were to go away. Ultimately, a return to health is not our hope, and the economy is not our hope, and freedom of movement, not our hope. A vaccine, a test, a ventilator, not our hope. A specific date in the calendar where the governor's colour goes from yellow to green, not our hope. Or when he goes from red to blue or blue to red or whatever it is that you wish to happen, not our hope. None of these things are our hope. There is, in fact, nothing in this world capable of furnishing us with any hope at all. We are broken people trying to fix a broken place with broken tools, and we cannot. Real hope may only come from somewhere perfect, somewhere else, something above. And in Mark chapter 16, box number four on the graphic, we discover that is where Jesus is. Now, before we dig in, if you have Mark open in front of you, and you look at Mark 16, and you look to the little gap between verses 8 and 9, you'll see what amounts to a sort of biblical caveat or footnote or something like that, a disclaimer maybe. You'll see it says something like mine does, which is some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Let me explain. When a letter like this was written, if it was any good, it would circulate, and people would copy the letter. And if it was really good, they would copy the copies as well. And uh, we have substantially more manuscripts, early documents of the New Testament than we do of anything else from antiquity like it. And as we look at these copies and the copies of copies and we compare them, we start to see some little variances in them. And some of the very earliest manuscripts of Mark do not have the verses that we're looking at today. And some scholars, they look at it in detail as well, and they notice that the language of these last few verses is subtly different as well. So we don't know if someone added to Mark or if 
Mark himself may have added to it at a later date, but we do not think that this bit was written by him at the time. If that worries you, let me make it worse. There are several books of the Bible that do this. There are several books of the Bible that were written by more than one person or compiled by one person using things from around the world at the time. And uh, they were written perhaps at different dates. There were some books of the Bible written by one person, but then, you know, amended by the same person at a later date. And whether Mark wrote this or not, and whether he wrote it at the time or not, it doesn't matter. God wrote this. 2 Timothy 3.16, or for those watching in England, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That same breath of God that, that pours life into the disciples, pours life into his lively word. By grace, God involved broken human creatures in the authorship of Holy Scripture, but ultimately, this book, the canon of this book, is exactly the word that God wanted us to have. The scrutiny that this has gone through is incredible. A footnote like this should give you some confidence that we've looked into it. There's no fudge, no one's hiding anything, but it is still the word of God. That is a good thing, because these two verses are immensely significant. Let's look at them. Mark 16, verse 19. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Well, for such an important verse, covering such an important topic, with such a strong disclaimer in capital letters, does anyone else think, like me and like Ben, that this verse is just a little bit prosaic, dull, succinct, ordinary? Bit of an anticlimax, maybe. Uh, it takes many parents longer to explain to their kids how to go up to bed than it takes Mark to explain how Jesus went up into heaven. You go up the stairs, run the shower, get a towel, take off your clothes, get into the shower. Once inside the shower, shower. Use soap on your feet, both of your feet. Get out of the shower, get dry using the towel to get dry, then get into bed, and once in the bed, sleep in it. Half an hour later, you go up the stairs to check on how things are going, because there's a scurry of activity as they hear footsteps on the stairs. What are you doing? You say, sorry, Dad, what I thought you said was take off your clothes, run the shower till it goes cold, whistle, and then run into a doorknob and knock yourself out the minute you hear footsteps on the stairs. The very matter-of-fact way in which Mark 16, 19 is written, I think, just goes to show how used to the miraculous the disciples have become. That This enormous moment receives no fanfare and gets fewer words than my nighttime instructions. They're just clearly used to crazy stuff happening, aren't they? This is an astonishing event. Don't just gloss over this and go, yeah. This is absolutely mind-bendingly astonishing. A previously dead man ascends into heaven alive. That this could receive so little fanfare is itself astonishing. This is the same Jesus who hung on a cross. The same Jesus who rose from a grave 
He now sits on the throne of God in heaven. As Bishop Jim said to us last year at a clergy conference, just think about the mechanics of this for a moment, if you like. This is not some wisp going up into heaven, leaving a corpse on the ground. That's, that's the theology of Disney. That's not actually truth. This is physical. God cares about the physical. God redeems the physical. God retains the physical and takes the physical into his throne room. Look at the verbs, if you don't believe me. Look at the prepositions. These are physical verbs, physical prepositions that are used to make the point. Taken up, sat down. Very physical words. There is now human flesh in heaven doing stuff. There's a man on the throne of God. Human flesh that took on sin is in heaven. Human flesh that became so riddled with sin that it had to be killed and judged is now sitting in heaven. Flesh that was more sinful than any human flesh has ever been because he took it all on himself is now in heaven. Not his sin, mine and yours and everyone's is now enthroned. Flesh that is fully human, flesh that bears all the marks of the cross, bears none of the shame. It is glorified and enthroned. And we know he is still flesh because he rose from the dead. And we know from this series that he appeared to Thomas and he says, look, you can, you can see, you can touch, you can put your finger inside and, and feel the flesh. We know that he's still God because the risen God defies the laws of nature. Of course he defies the laws of nature. They're his laws. He sustains these laws and he controls these laws. And defying the laws of, of physics and nature and appearing to the disciples in a locked room, he breathes on them of all things the Holy Spirit. Fully man, you can touch him. Fully God, he breathes life as only God can do. These are his laws. He transcends them. It is his body. He takes it into heaven. And he's not just slinked back into heaven. He's not scraped in. He's not still tainted by sin. He's not still shamed by the cross. He is wounded, but he is glorified by those wounds because he has taken on sin and defeated it and taken that victory into heaven. The incarnation is not just like a whatever. It's not a pretty story for Christmas, all right? It's not some crazy Vegas trip where what goes on in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. The sin of humankind has been vanquished. The death that our sin deserves has been destroyed, but Jesus has not been destroyed. The cross is an emblem of suffering and shame. The throne is an emblem of glory and authority and power. And Jesus is not on the cross. He's on the throne in flesh like yours. The God of grace who died for you is now enthroned for you. And he knows you. And he loves you. Someone who loves you is seated on the throne of eternity over all things. From the cross to the throne. All of this is why Hebrews 
chapter 4, verse 16, can say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It would be insane to draw near to the throne of God without Jesus Christ. You would die without Jesus Christ because you'd be approaching it as a sinner. But in Christ Jesus, we approach it as those who've been redeemed, those for whom their sins have been paid and death has died. He's enthroned for you. Of course you can approach the throne. The throne is our hope in time of need. The throne is our hope in times of suffering. And of course it is, because look who's on it. It is your brother and your Lord, Jesus Christ. It is really astonishing that God hung on an instrument of torture and shame It is at least equally astonishing that man sits on an emblem of power and authority. Even more astonishing when you realize that God promised hundreds of years before he did it that he would do it. Psalm 110, for example, says these words. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Really confusing passage of Scripture. Jesus himself teaches on this passage of Scripture earlier in Mark's Gospel, Mark 12. And he says, well, it's me. That Lord is me. The one sitting is me. I will do this, he says. I will sit there. It is me. Sitting is a sign of authority. Jesus is saying here, I have authority to rule over the whole universe. And... Because Jesus died on the cross, we know what he uses that authority to do. He lays it down for you. That's why we have hope. Jesus rules with authority and he rules with grace. And then he calls us out to go and use his authority and to proclaim his grace. He calls us out, those who have found hope in a time of suffering, to spread it. Look with me next, please, at verse 20. Verse 20, describing what happens to these people who are just watching Jesus ascend. And they went out and preached everywhere. Just everywhere. Places that had previously been unclean and unreached and undesirable are now reached by the good news of Jesus Christ. These places now become targets for grace. And I absolutely love the word preached. It's not a dry speech. Preaching is not boring. If you hear something boring, it's not preaching. Preaching is vibrant. Preaching is fiery. The bishop, J.C. Ryle, bishop of Liverpool, uh, once said that, that we should preach the fiery, fervent word of God with fire in our bellies. Preaching offends. Preaching rubs people up the wrong way. Preaching gets attention. Preaching convicts. Preaching is passionate. Preaching heralds news, and it's loud, and it's exciting, and it's new. And when it is accepted, it changes lives. Preaching, proclaiming, caruso, the word used here, is what a town crier did, a herald. It is something that has gravity and authority. It's official. But uh, it is challenging and it is exciting as well. It's news. What did they go out and preach? Well, they just preached the five little boxes. That's all they did. 
They just went and shared five little boxes. Any one of us in this feed or this room could print out the bulletin and lead someone to Jesus Christ. Any one of us could preach by pointing to, to five little pictures. They just went out and they just said, look, Jesus died for your sins on a cross and he rose from the dead and he is now seated in the heavenly places and he poured out his Holy Spirit and he will come again to make all things new, to redeem this broken world and to fix it. When he says he will come again, he will and we can trust it because of who he is and where he is and what he does. He's not given up on flesh. And just waft away to something spiritual. He has redeemed flesh, raised flesh, enthroned flesh. He will come again to heal our flesh or to judge it, depending on which side you pick, because a throne does two things. A throne is a judgment seat or a mercy seat. A throne is a place of terror for those who are opposed to it and a place of, of grace for those who are identified with it. And that same psalm that we looked at, the one Jesus quotes in Mark 12, Psalm 110, looks at the throne of God and it says to the people of God, look, here's your hope. God is on the throne and he is for you. But it also looks at the people of God and says, but your enemies will be judged by that throne and from that throne. For them, it is not something to hope in. It is something to kneel before. Can you kneel before the throne and say that you are clean? It's not scripture, it's Mumford and Sons, but I love that song. Can you, can you and I mangle the words because I always do, but can, can, can you kneel before the throne and, and say you're clean? No, I'm a sinner, I'm a terrible mess. Yes, because Jesus died for my sin and terrible mess. Yes, I can. And uh, it's not just about the end when he returns. This isn't just like, oh, okay, we'll get through corona and then the next thing and, you know, Eventually, Jesus will come again and fix it. This is a promise for now. God is on the throne now, and he's doing things now. Look at the disciples. Next thing they did, having brought the truth of the gospel to bear on the world around them, the five little boxes, the next thing they do is they start to bring the gospel to bear on box number one. They start to speak into people's present suffering now and placing it into the context of eternity now. How did they achieve this? Well, verse 20 says, they went out and they preached everywhere. We get that. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Note this, while the Lord worked with them. He's just left. And he's still working with them. This is absolutely crazy. Jesus has just gone away. And he's still working with them, alongside them, and in them, and through them. They do the message. He does the signs. That word confirming means making something sure or certain. Their message is confirmed by his signs. They talk about it, he does it. Having gone away, we're told that Jesus Christ is still here, still working, still confirming, still giving signs. Heaven's throne is here. Jesus Christ has brought us close to the throne and is using the power of the throne here. It's an incredible thought. Strangely, in God's economy, when Jesus left, we got closer to him. 
absolutely, that I don't have any words for this stuff. All the power and authority of heaven is deployed from the throne here. It is remarkable. And he does this alongside their fallen words. You know, they do their best to get through the five boxes, but they're still blokes, still messing up, still getting simple instructions, but going upstairs, whistling and running into a doorknob. You know, <laughs> we're just broken people. But the power of the throne, nonetheless, is available to us through power, through presence, through signs. Man, you cannot write this stuff. Of all of the things that we could be doing today, we're gathering around a Lord's table. Weirdly, from our cars, with the windows down just outside, but of all of the things we could do on a day like this, as we commemorate the ascension of Jesus and his power and authority and yet proximity to us through signs, of all of the things we could do, we're going to share in a sign of his authority and of his grace and of his power. Paul says if you receive communion in an unworthy manner, it can cause sickness and even death. So here's a test. Come and receive. This is God's lively assurance to us that he loves us, that he is enthroned for us, that he uses all of that power and all of that authority for the purposes of bringing about grace and redemption. The Lord is here. Please draw near with faith. Come to this building in about 20 minutes' time and taste hope. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are broken people and we have fears and we have suffering and we even suffer the suffering. But you are enthroned for us. And you have taken away our sin and you have taken flesh into eternity as a taste of what is to come. We thank you, God, that you do not abandon us to our mess and abandon us to our brokenness, but that you were incarnate and lived and walked among us, and having died for us, you are enthroned for us, and you will come again to make all things new. And until you do, Lord Jesus Christ, would we taste your very presence this moment as we feed on you in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.